Hey, my name is Brianna, and you're listening to the FCC Grayson Podcast. God is doing some incredible things here at First Church. To learn more about FCC and maybe plan your visit, head on over to FCCGrayson.com. We hope today's message gives you hope, inspires, and encourages you in your walk with God. Let's dive into today's message. We're going to be coming out of the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 11 through 14. Now, before I read this, I'm not going to give a recap as to what we've covered already this month. But just a reminder that verses 3 through 14 are one continuous sentence. It's one continuous thought in the original Greek. With that being said, we have to look at themes and we have to pick out redundancies and things that, use, that Paul uses over and over and over again to make sure that we are extracting, or for you Bible students, we are exegeting properly what Paul was talking about in this passage of Scripture. That's why, this, who knows what this is? It's a yoke, right? You know what kind of yoke it is? Big, yes. Yes, big. This is a double yoke. Okay, it, does that say 1770 on there? 1790, wow. That's pretty awesome. One of the things, the phrases that Paul uses over and over again, and we've mentioned it each week, is this fact of being in Christ. And I wanted to bring, I had Britt bring this in so you could have a little bit of a visual. What this tool was used for was to harness around the necks of two oxen, two, two bull, two something like that, and to have them pull whatever farm equipment, machinery behind them to work the ground. Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And he also tells us that we are co-laborers with him. I want you all to get a visual of this and understand that Everything that we've already talked about up until this point, and especially what we're going to talk about today, does not happen if you're not in Christ. This was never designed for one animal to utilize. They had single yokes for those. But this is, this is representative of our walk with Christ. Because when we are in Christ, it's not the fact that he does everything for you. Nor is it that you do everything without Him. It is a walk together, equally and, and, and yoked together, pulling this thing with Him being the one determining the direction. It's not that He has to have your help. He can do it by Himself. He did it by Himself. But He wants you to understand that not only is He sovereign and is He all-powerful, but the fact that you have to put some effort into this thing too. You have to remain in Christ. So everything I say today goes through that lens, okay? Can we have an agreement? Just nonverbal, you can shake your head. Good. All you education majors, you know what I'm talking about here. So let's read Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that we can set aside on a Sunday, come together and be, be as family. Uh, God, under your word, under your instruction, and under your presence. Father, I pray that, uh, that you challenge us, you comfort us, you convict us, whatever work needs to be done in each of our hearts, that God, that you would do that through your word this morning. And God, I pray that the words that would be spoken by me would be honoring to you, would glorify you, and would be inspired by your Holy Spirit to speak your word and divide it rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so a little bit of a quiz, real quick. This is probably going to apply to the 35-plus, maybe 40-plus crowd in, in here. Um, what show, what former television show, was known for the famous line of, I love it when a plan comes together? The A-Team, right? Okay, you don't have to be shy. You can, you can let your age and your geekdom show. It's fine. So for bonus points... Who was always the one saying that in the show? Hannibal. Good, we got a couple people in here that's cultured and know some TV. That's good. See, and he was the, you know, because when I was growing up and I was watching the A-Team, you know, everybody always wanted to be Mr. T. You know, the guy that big, muscular, you know, you can tell that that's what drives me. <laughs> no, Okay. But this guy who's just beating everybody up is intimidating. I pity the fool, you know. I mean, even if you didn't eat his cereal, he pitied you, you know, apparently to some commercials. But the older that I get, the more that I am kind of becoming like Hannibal, you know, the guy who just kind of sits back, just really doesn't do a whole lot, but takes a lot of pleasure out of watching other people do the stuff. And, you know, just I love it when a plan comes together. And that's kind of what we're seeing Paul talking about here, because we've talked about the, the part of this doxology. In this, verses 3 through 14, these, this is a, like the pinnacle, the ultimate doxology of praise that we see from Paul here. And it's just like he gets going, and this praise just continually flows from him. And he can't contain himself. He's just continuing to write and continuing to praise. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time that you got so engrossed into the presence of God that you couldn't contain yourself and you had to praise Him. Can I tell you, this book is full of that. It's full of men and women who get deep into the presence of God. And the only response, the only response when you're in the presence of God is to praise God. So as we begin to look at these verses 11 through 14, we're starting to see this plan come together. Okay, God, Paul's been talking about the spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessings that we have in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So he's gone through this list of talking about us being chosen, talking about us being adopted, about us being redeemed, forgiven, that we are his, and he's made this sacrifice for us. And now we start to see the practical outplaying of this in our lives. And it starts... With verse 11, which it says, in him, again, we're talking about Christ. Because remember the first three, verses 3 through 6, we're talking about the blessings of God the Father. Then verses 7, 
really through, it, it kind of intermingles here, but through the beginning of verse 13 is talking about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. So in Him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your, your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, if we go back and we begin to look in verse 11, and before we get to the talk of the Holy Spirit, we see that in Christ, in verse 11, that we have obtained an inheritance. Now, I want to pause here for just a minute, and I want to talk to you about this word inheritance, because in the original Greek, I am by no means a Greek scholar. You all know that. I'm not an English scholar, and that's my native language. Okay, But in the original Greek, there's a lot of debate, and it's not even... Um, you know, real tension-filled debate, but this is a difficult word to translate properly, this inheritance, because there's one camp that believes that this word inheritance means that we are God's inheritance that he's talking about here. And really, if you look at the, some of the other translations, it says that we are God's prize. We are God's possession. We are His portion. And, and I love that language and that terminology of that. We are His portion. Then there's another camp that believes that this word inheritance means is talking about the inheritance that we see on our end, that we receive from God. And here's the thing. Both of these are biblical concepts. And the word inheritance is used twice in this passage of Scripture that, that we're reading this morning. And I believe, I would like to propose and submit to you, this is just my opinion, okay? I believe that we see both versions of that inheritance in this. I believe that the inheritance that's talking about at the beginning is talking about us being God's portion. Think about that for just a moment, that you are God's portion portion. You are his prize. You are his inheritance. How many of you in here this morning feel like you're qualified to be God's inheritance? When we go into the Old Testament and we begin to see in the book of Deuteronomy in particular, I think it's chapter 32 verse 9, that the Lord makes this statement. He's talking to the nation of Israel and they're getting ready to go into the promised land. They're getting ready to occupy this promise that they've waited a generation for, 40 some years to see come to pass. And they're getting ready to move in and the Lord uses the phrasing that you, my people, are my inheritance. You are my portion. You see, what they did before they went into the promised land is they divided up the promised land and they parceled out land for the nation of Israel to own. Each, each tribe, each representative had parcels of land that was going to be assigned to them. So their inheritance was already laid out and mapped out for them before they got into the promised land. But then God makes sure that they understand the amount of love, the amount of passion, the amount of care that he has for them. And he says, you have all of this as your possession. This promised land is going to be all yours, and you are actually going to own part of this as an inheritance from me. But make no mistake about it, my inheritance in this deal, God talking to the Israelites says, my inheritance is this deal is you. You are my inheritance. How amazing is that? That God would look at us and would say, you are 
are my inheritance. Now we talk so often, almost every Sunday, about the fact that, you know what? God is God. God is really big, and you're not. And I think that the bigger that we see God, the bigger that we consider God, the more powerful, the more sovereign, the more just awesome that God is, that should become a bigger blessing to us. The bigger that God gets, that means the smaller that we become, and that should still increase our level of gratitude, thankfulness, and, 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 and being willing to praise God just for the fact of, because if He's really, really big, and we're really, really small to a level that we can't even begin to articulate, that should cause us to worship because God still loves you. No matter how big He is, no matter how small you are, as a matter of fact, the bigger He is in our lives and the smaller that we are, the more amazing His grace is when we think about that He came to die for you. I hope that's an encouraging thought for you this morning. The bigger that God is in your life, the more it should drive you to worship Him because that means that this God that we are incapable of understanding, of being able to fathom, still loves me. He still loves me so much that His Son came and died for me. But if we go on the flip side of that inheritance and we say that this means that it is what God is, you know, they're referring to our inheritance to God, then we've got scriptural evidence of that too. We, we see that in 1 Peter chapter 3 where he talks about the inheritance that we see from God is unblemished, is perfect, is beautiful, is lovely. So either way that the translation goes, however you think it is in your mind, it's not a bad thing. Amen? Because if you're God's, then that's pretty awesome. And if he's yours and you're getting an inheritance from him, guess what? That's pretty awesome too. So he says that we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So what does that mean that we, I want you to notice the pronouns here. As we go through this passage, notice the pronouns that Paul uses. In verse 12, it says, so that we, so Paul is including himself, correct? English grammar teachers help me out. That's what we means, right? Okay. Who were the first to hope in Christ. So Paul's kind of drawing a dividing line right here, isn't he? We which means that there are some that are not part of the we. Paul is talking about the Jewish converts here. He's talking about the remnant, the, the, the Hebrew nation, the Israelites, who were faithful in thinking, and those who believed in the Jewish part of the Jewish tradition and that had accepted Jesus as their Messiah. He was saying that we were the first to hope in because Jesus came for, what, first the Jew, then the Gentile right? That's what Scripture tells us. So Paul's making this distinction. He's drawing this line here. He's saying that so that we, who were the first? So that was the Jewish people. And then he makes this statement that if, if you write in your Bible, if you mark in your Bible, if you put themes and things in your Bible, please, through the passage of verses 3 through 14, write in that to the praise of his glory. 
because that's what this is all about. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard. So again, there's a connecting statement here. So it would be really easy for the Jewish people to read this. And newsflash here, we all struggle with pride. We all like to think that we're the best at something, or we're better than other people, or that we think differently, we act differently, we're just kind of elevated a little bit, and we all have this problem called pride, sinful pride in our lives. And it would have been really easy for the Jewish converts at that point to look and go, ha-ha, see, we're still better. We were the first to hope. God chose us. That means that we're better by far, head and shoulders. But then Paul makes this statement to where he switches the pronouns. He switches pronouns here. And he says that in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe in him. Who's Paul talking about there? Being you. He's talking about the Gentiles. You see, and that's a really, uh, that's a really broad term biblically, because we see so much talked about with Jews and Gentiles. Jews were a pretty specific group. That was the nation of Israel, the faithful who remained with God. And then when they converted to Christianity, that was, that was a pretty, pretty select group and pretty well-defined. But this word Gentiles back in this culture, that wasn't as well-defined because that basically meant you who are Jews and then everybody else. So the word Gentile can mean anything, any race, any ethnicity, any background, any socioeconomic status, any background whatsoever that's different from Jewish is considered a Gentile. So Paul, l listen to the language he's using here in church. Please allow ourselves to let this sink into us this morning that Jesus Christ came for all mankind. He didn't come for just some. He didn't come for a particular race. He didn't come for a particular purpose. He didn't come for a particular ethnicity, background, what, no matter what your checkbook looks like, what your bank account, what type of job you have, what type of standing you have in the community. It doesn't matter because Jesus Christ came for all mankind, Jew and Gentile. Thank you. I don't know who said that, but I'll take an amen. It's okay, you can smile, you can laugh. It's... Okay. I'm about ready to post one of those uh, Bernie memes. I'm sitting here in the pew. I kid, I, I really wouldn't do that until tomorrow. But think about that message. Folks, let me, let me just present this to you. If your version of the gospel draws a line as to where his love reaches, it's the wrong gospel. If your version of the gospel says that it's good for this group, but not this group, then you've got the wrong gospel. If you believe that there is a dividing line anywhere in your thinking, as to what the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ can and cannot redeem, you need to repent. You need to repent and see the beauty of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because His love 
and his sacrifice covers all mankind. Period. So then he says this, and here's where we're going to get into the, the God, the Holy Spirit. And this is really, really important to remember this right here. In Christ. Because we're going to talk about three things really quickly that he talks about the Holy Spirit, this promise that God makes. First, it says that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Really quick background into seal, uh, not kissed by a rose from the grave, um, not the animal. Anybody? No? Okay, I just got laser eyes from my daughter on that dad joke right there. Okay. But not talking about the animal, but I'm talking about a seal that presents and shows ownership. One of the more, um, you know, the more recognizable things that we could think of is a seal on a letter or an official document that, you know, they would take the hot wax and then whatever the, the signet ring or, ring or whatever the seal was at the time, that way that they could see that it was a legitimate piece that was coming from someone and, and it wasn't pl- plagiarized, Okay. It also, they would do this to show ownership of livestock. And unfortunately, at the time, they would do that to show with the humans that they had enslaved also, is they would put and brand a seal or put a mark on them so that there was this external sign of ownership that was determined that if their, if their cattle got out or something, that they would see this branding and they would know that it belonged to someone So this seal that he's talking about that the Holy Spirit does actually puts a stamp of ownership on our lives. But see, it's not as simple as us having something externally branded or some type of external evidence to say that we are God's. God's seal by the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of us. So our sealing of the Holy Spirit happens internally. And he talks about that you are sealed by the promise of Holy Spirit. Now this, this sealing is also something that, and, and if you read some of the more um, dynamic, artistic translations of the Bible, you'll see that they liken this word and this, this concept to an engagement ring. But I don't think that takes it nearly far enough because an engagement ring absolute, plays absolutely no role in the wedding vows or in the marriage themselves, right? It's just a once that you get married, the engagement ring loses its significance as to what significance as to what it means. He's given us an inheritance, and we're being sealed by this by the promised Holy Spirit. I want you to think of the Holy Spirit as something that we have now, but not quite yet. It's something that we have evidence of and something that we have residing in us now, but the fullness of it is not yet. I I liken this to kind of like a down payment on a house. So whenever you put a down payment on a house, that's actually making a payment to the bank or to whoever you're taking the money, you're receiving the loan from, and you're saying that this is my promise that I'm going to be good for the rest of what is owed. But it's not like they take that down payment and just say, okay, if it's a $300,000 home, then you're going to give us you know, $60,000 as a down payment, but you're still going to owe us $300,000. 
They say that we're going to take that $60,000 and we are going to apply it to that total so you now owe us $240,000. So basically what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to go up to Mark Strawler after service. I'm going to give him a $5 bill and I'm going to say, here's my down payment, here's the house I want, and we'll be good. Right, Mark? Yeah, okay. All right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we will. <laughs> so His Holy Spirit is a down payment for us but it's part of the inheritance that we're not yet walking in the fullness of. So we see that the Holy Spirit serves as a seal. We also see that it says the promised Holy Spirit. And you can look all through the Old Testament and see that it's coming from a place of Ezekiel to Joel to all other different types of places talking about and prophesying about God's Holy Spirit. Jesus wasn't the only one prophesied about in the Old Testament. God the Son was not the only one prophesied about in the Old Testament. God the Holy Spirit was prophesied and foretold about also. And then it goes on to say that who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Holy Spirit is also your guarantee. The Holy Spirit, with Him living in you, you have assurance of salvation. Now, let me pause real quick and let me answer the question some of you may be thinking. Preacher, are you talking about eternal security? Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. But I also want to remind you that none of these things are applicable unless we are in Christ. I believe that I am eternally secure, that nothing can separate me from the love of God as long as I am in Christ. Being assured of our salvation is not a means of saying that, oh, I can, I, okay, I said a prayer, I was baptized, now I can do anything I want because I'm covered by His grace. Guys, God's grace is amazing, but it isn't greasy. <laughs> that was good. Okay? It was good. God's grace is amazing, but it's not greasy. It's not cheap. And if we have that mindset that we can do anything we want to because there's grace for that, actually devalues and cheapens the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary. We are assured, not because of what we've done. We are assured of our salvation, not because of our good works. We're assured of our salvation, not because we don't, we don't use curse words. We're, we're assured not because we don't drink, not because we don't smoke, not because we don't do all of these things. It's nothing that's within us that assures our salvation. It is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, His broken body, His shed blood, His resurrection, and His Holy Spirit living and operating in our lives now. That is what assures our salvation. So when you are in Christ, you have His Holy Spirit dwelling in you. My brothers, my sisters, in Christ, you are eternally assured. But if you're not in Christ, if you're not in Christ, then there's going to be an eternity of separation from God. 
And we can sit and we can, we can debate, we can talk about, we can ramble about what that eternity of separation from Christ is going to look like, what it will, what it won't have. The one thing that I know for sure that it will not have is my Savior. And that is going to be eternal torment when we are eternally separated from the one that we were created to be with. To the praise of His glory. We are all hardwired to praise. We're all hardwired to praise. We have no option. But what we miss the mark so much on is what is the focus of our praise? What are we focusing our praise on? Because I can promise you that there are times that you praise athletes. There are times that you praise public figures that you just put up on a pedestal. There's times that our praise is focused in the wrong direction. Even with our own thoughts. We all have this problem of sinful pride. That's praise focused on the wrong thing. What about your job? How, how, how consumed with you are in you? How consumed are you in your occupation? What about your family? How much does your family take away from God? How about your kids? How many times have you sacrificed something you should be doing for God or somewhere you should be for God in pursuit of praising and focusing on your kids? What about a political party? Hey. Careful now, preacher. How many times... <laughs> I'm going to need to pray for wisdom and discernment right here real quick. How many times have you sacrificed your praise for God to have it focused on a political person, a political party, an ideology, or some type of political aspirations? When a person sees your life and knows your life, do they know that you are one who praises to the praise of His glory? Or do they see all of your energy, all of your focus in other places? 